welcome to our latest patient safety podcast. Today's podcast is part two of a two-part series in which we put your questions directly to early adopters of the Patient Safety Incident Response Framework, or PSERF for short. So my name is Tracy Herlihy and I'm Head of Patient Safety Incident Response Policy within NHS England's National Patient Safety Team. And today I'm joined by my colleague Lauren Mosley, Head of Patient Safety Implementation in the National Patient Safety Team, as well as one of our early adopters from Cornwall, Kerry Crowther from Cornwall Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. So CFT is a mental health and community health trust. And in part two, part one of this two-part podcast, we spoke with early adopters from West Suffolk, a provider of acute and community care. So today, Kerry, patient safety specialist, who has kindly volunteered to answer questions about her experience implementing the framework as part of our early adopter program. So massive thanks to Kerry for taking the time to join us today. Um, I'd also like to say a huge thanks to those who responded to our request on Twitter for questions to ask our early adopters. Many of those questions are featured in this two-part series. So I'm just gonna get started. So Kerry, I've got a first question for you. I've tried to group them together so they're in kind of themes. So this first one is kind of around um, transitioning to PSERF and those different preparation phases. Um, so there's quite a lot in this question. So this um, th and this came from our launch webinar. So in relation to the orientation phase, which in the kind of preparation guide that we've created is that first phase um, to transition, um, this person is interested in who was on your team. How did you create or allocate time to read and reflect? What was the structure of your team? And did you break the work into work streams for projects, et cetera? Um, it's a really good question in terms of I've reflected on that as an early adopter. And I would say that um, we didn't necessarily have the team and infrastructure that in place at the beginning that I would say um, is necessary. I guess one of the things is not underestimating the time, energy and infrastructure that you'll need to, to do this and to really treat it like a project. So one of the things that we did in terms of orientation was to um, really gather um, all of the data and intelligence across the organisation. So I very much use teams. Um, so our freedom to speak up, our patient experience, coroner's inquest, litigation team, obviously all of the incident management, pals and complaints. So all of those teams really contributed to producing the information that we needed to be able to analyse to start understanding what the next steps were in terms of um, breaking that down to manageable chunks and looking at where um, we might need to do a bit more work. Um, so it was really um, most of that work fell to me as an individual as I was the patient safety manager at that time but I did work alongside other colleagues in terms of trying to understand the way that their data was presented and how we could maybe start to identify themes um, so I don't know about some organisations but where you have different digital platforms sometimes it can be really difficult to compare apples with apples so you need to start doing some of that work and I would guess really that's where a data analyst might be really useful as part of your early project discussions. Yeah that's really useful thanks Kerry. I guess um, in a related question and um, this one came in via Twitter from CASC Leicester um, and they were asking um, you know kind of what um, what models or uh, in terms of teams or people power did you employ to implement PSEF? So I guess did you did you use a data analyst at all or kind of bring in people with different skills? 
So um, we didn't, um, we kind of used the skills that we had within the organisation, although we did use um, a national patient safety expert to help with um, sort of analysing the data. So whilst I did it, um, but I was quite early in my patient safety sort of um, manager role and leading on such a large project. So we um, actually did have a patient safety expert come in who did the same sort of work. Um, and the reassurance was that actually we both came to the same conclusions. Um, so sometimes it was just that assurance and that testing that you've done that bit of work right. Um, so that was really quite useful. Um, in terms of other people power, we did get, reach out to um, clinical staff and also a patient representative within the organisation just to make sure that we had people's voices um, across the organisation. Thanks very much. So I'm going to move on to talk about kind of how responses to patient safety incidents might have changed under PSERF. And we had a couple of questions around this. So one that came in through Twitter from Lil. Um, Lil was interested in how you respond to unexpected deaths under PSERF. I think that's interesting. So as a mental health organisation, actually, we had to think quite hard about how we would um, respond to deaths. Uh, particularly given that most unexpected deaths, or certainly those that were attributable to a presumed suicide or a self-harm, would have gone down the serious incident framework and you'd have had an SI. Um, and of course, those SIs then used to feed um, into the coronial process. So I guess that's another learning in terms of thinking what else your SI process fed and then how that you take that into consideration within your, your PSERF um, plan. But for us, what we did was we looked at our learning from deaths policy and we've really utilised um, the mortality review process to look at those deaths. So developing a greater robustness in our structured judgment review processes um, that we're still building on, to be fair, and um, to make sure that we've got that resilience um, and business continuity across the organisation. But it's then identifying actually where do you have some concerns that you might want to undertake a thematic analysis um, if you've got any themes coming through or where you see a direct correlation um, from you know, care or treatment that you think might be a contributory factor to a patient's death, then that falls into your, your national priorities anyway, and you would undertake a PSII. So I think what we've done is linked it very much into learning from death, but then of course you need to make sure that you're setting people's expectations um, right and having very clear conversations with families uh, because they are very emotive. Yeah, that uh, and I guess that piece about kind of speaking with families, we have a question on that. So hold that thought for now. And kind of, and what you said as well around that, taking that step back and seeing kind of what your SI process kind of fed into to kind of know who you need to engage and what's going to change. That that was I think that's really a useful um, piece of advice. Um, another question related to kind of how responses change under PSEF, and this came from our launch webinar. Um, and this person was commenting that so the biggest change under PSEF is from the detailed investigation of every serious incident um, into themes and using the systems approach. So they were asking, how have you made this a new approach rather than just adding to previous approaches? So how did you manage to stop doing things and how did individual incident response need to change? It's interesting because there's a real temptation, I think, within PSERF to do SIs, but by a different name. So instead of doing um, 
I don't know, we were on average doing anything between 90 and 110 SIs a year. That didn't include your sort of clinical reviews and other methodologies. So you could say, well, we're going to do 20 PSIIs from local priorities, um, but then you end up doing 95 clinical reviews. So actually you're not changing the process. So I guess the bit is thinking about, you know, what other improvement activity is happening within your organisation? What clearly articulated risks are you aware about? What mitigation and actions have you got in place around those? And then thinking about what do we know and what don't we know? Where's the opportunity for new learning to come on board and thinking about that? And that is really difficult. Um, one thing that we did do was once we'd identified our sort of top 10 priorities, um, even those um, groups were, were quite large, you know, in terms of headings, if you like, we needed to be able to delve down a little bit and understand what those headings really meant. So we had some focus groups with clinical staff, patient representative um, and some other of the corporate teams. So our coroner inquest solicitor and, and, and complaints team to start to understand actually what are the themes telling us? What do we know already? link it with improvement activity and risks and then think about where's the action where are we probably going to get the best new learning and that's how we tried to break that down um you know looking at where we are 12 months on that bit needs review because i'm not sure that we got it 100 percent right but that's the whole part of being a an early adopter i guess is is testing that so um what did we manage to stop doing um being quite so reactive, I think, and um, it's it's a real challenge. Um, but we, as a as a patient safety team, we've had to um, almost push a little bit to say no. We're going to stop. We're going to take a step back. We're going to evaluate why we're asked being asked to do that or why you want to do that and think about asking the question in a different way and how else you might be able to get to uh, the same answer or or to to look at different methodologies um we needed to shift the focus from what i would say was a command and control approach where most of the decisions about what level of investigation was undertaken was held centrally back out to having those discussions with our operational colleagues about so where do you think we can get the most value how can we have a conversation and think about culture at the same time and that psychological safety and for staff to have the opportunity to say that didn't go so well but actually i think we might be able to do something differently so yeah it was it's challenge it's still a challenge and we haven't got it licked by long chore. <laughs> uh, no, that, that's great. And I think, um, you know, like many of our early adopters, they they kind of describe, um, you know, we, we have this kind of 12 month transition plan for organizations transition to PSAF, but in their minds, it's very much kind of a five year, kind of 10 year um, journey almost. It's more of a kind of a movement than it is, um, you know, once we transition to PSAF, then everything's going to, you know, change immediately. Um, and it's great to hear, you know, it, it is an iterative process over time. We kind of build on um, on those processes that we've kind of put in place. Um, I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about family involvement. But before um, I get that, I get to that in a, a bit of a related question. So this also came from Twitter from CASC Leicester again. 
Um, and they were interested in whether or not patients, pa patient safety partners or PSPs have been engaged. They asked about specifically in investigations to give the patient perspective, but also I guess I'm interested in have they been involved in the wider um, PSERF kind of process. So obviously as an earlier doctor, we didn't have patient safety partners um, in post at, at that time, but we did have um, a patient um, consultant or advisor um, who was supportive in terms of the early days. We haven't had that independent voice, but what we have done is engaged really quite strongly with the families um, or patient um, where we've had the PSIIs. So we are looking at the PSII um, standards. Um, we're looking at scoping and planning um, and developing the terms of reference. We then take those terms of reference to the families and have those discussions with them so that they have that opportunity to contribute to those. Um, so that's how we've been doing it, giving the family and, and the patient a direct voice themselves. Um, my plan will be once our patient safety partners are fully established that they will be part of that investigation team. Um, the way that we've set our infrastructure up um, is that we have a small team of operational leads, the lead investigator, subject matter experts, the patient safety team and the patient safety partner will be part of that as we move forward. That sounds that sounds great. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a feeling that there's going to be many people out there who are going to want to follow your journey as you start as you start to do that. Um, so speaking of, of, of families, um, the, there was one question we had from our launch webinar. Um, who the question was asking, so how have families been engaged when there hasn't been an investigation? And do you have any advice on how best organisations can approach this? So this has been a, a question that's kind of come up before with people that I've been speaking to. And, and I think people get tied up in thinking that there has to be an investigation where um, you have duty of candour, for instance, and that's not what the legislation tells us. What it tells us is it's about applying the being open principles. Um, so, you know, a manager's review of an incident is still a review. So what we've done is changed the language when we're doing those being open conversations. We're saying, you know, we're saying we're sorry that this has happened, um, regardless of the level of harm of the incident um, in terms of being open. But we're also saying that we're undertaking a review and the manager is going to be looking at that first. And then if that identifies something else, then we are just being open that we're, we're going to do additional work to look at that. So I think it's more of a change of the language um, and just being really open about what's happened, why it's happened, what you found um, and answering any of their questions honestly. Um, I think the bit that we have reflected on as an organisation, or certainly myself, is, you know, being open is on behalf of the organisation, even that, you know, but it is also a professional responsibility um, for, for us. But actually, it's not easy to sometimes have those open conversations, um, you know, particularly where you have um, patients and families that have been involved with the team for a long time. The incident isn't just happening to the patient and the family. Sometimes it can be happening with our teams. So I do think it's how we support that leadership um, and who undertakes duty of candour and how we support the staff and debrief them as well as the patients and the families. Um, something I've reflected on is you know, what we do is by default duty of candour is usually undertaken by the most junior of our senior nursing staff. 
Um, so how do we support people to do that? Um, so for me, it's about how we equip our frontline clinicians with the knowledge, skills and confidence to have those open conversations, but also um, in terms of the culture that they can um, approach their leaders to be able to support them in doing that. Great, thanks, Kerry. Um, I guess related to um, family involvement, um, this question came in from Twitter from at NHS SO. And they were interested, they asked, how have you made PSII, so patient safety incident investigations, and the associated reports as simple, but as effective as possible? I guess I'm assuming in kind of relation to families. Um, I guess it's a challenge. I don't think we've 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 quite got it where we want it to go yet. So the, the national template gives you your framework. You can add to that. What I would say is it's about the language that is used and we need to remember that whilst the the report is is written on for the organisation, learning for the organisation, other people may be using it. So we're concentrating on the language, making sure that we're not using abbreviations and acronyms or where we are, we're fully explaining them. Trying not to get lost in that sort of technical language, I think is something that we're really looking at. So I know we're that accessible communication, what does that mean? How does that mean your reports might look differently? I guess the, the one bit is how do we then how do we go through that report with them? It isn't just a case of handing that report over, it's giving them the opportunity to go through it with somebody and ask those questions at times. I guess the other bit is sometimes they want just the copy of the report, but then it's them giving them the opportunity to come back um, and, and ask those questions. Um, but I think it's language is, is the biggest um, challenge that I would say is making it as, um, as non-technical as you can. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really good advice. So moving on a little bit to talk about some of the tools that, you, that you've that you been using, I guess related to kind of how we respond to, to incidents. Um, this one um, came via Twitter from Natalie Davies, um, and she was interested in which tools from the toolkit do you use and when, and which ones have proved most beneficial? Uh, so we use the timeline one, that one's um, been quite effective because I think what it does is it allows you to um, just distill things and think about their relevance when you're creating that timeline because there is a there is a temptation to just put everything in it <laughs> um, which makes it then really difficult to think about where your key lines of inquiry and that may be um, in terms of formulating your scope in terms of reference so that's been really useful um, in terms of we that's the one we've used the most. I would have to say we're still testing some of the others. So we've got new investigating officers that have um, been newly trained. So we are, again, in terms of, of testing those tools and, and finding out. But we will be looking at having a suite of tools that we are going to use so that we really get that familiarity and that competence with them, because I think that's really key. Um, so we could use something once and say that's no good, but it's about testing it repeatedly um, and then using it um, and, and adapting it maybe to, to fit how your organisation works. No, I think that's really important. I guess related to that, um, and it may be that, it's, that this is kind of yet to be trialled, but uh, another question that came from Twitter from CASC Leicester, um, they were interested if you could 
describe an example of using after action review at all or if you've applied the SEEPS model, so the Systems Engineering Initiative for Patient Safety, um, that framework, if you've used that in a, in a learning response at all. So it's interesting, we kind of did a round table using the after action review sort of methodology around what was expected to happen, what actually happened, what were your gaps sort of thing. Um, and we used it on an instant that um, a patient um, went out um, for a home visit and their home visit was over an hour away from the ward. Um, and there were lots of things that didn't go according to plan. Um, what we were able to do using the sort of after action review approach was to depersonalize what had happened to the individuals that were involved and to really look at some of the systems and processes that um, helped or hindered really in terms of that patient journey um, and how we can maintain safety um, out of the sort of ward environment, if you like. Um, and we came up with some really good things. So um, a lot of things linked to transport and how our transport works with us. So what are our cars equipped with to help safety? Um, so I call it a Batman button. It's not a Batman button, but it's like a GPS thing that you can press when there are something is is happening that you need assistance for. And um, we've put um, a, sort of a distraction box um, with tools and that in a, in a car. Um, we've looked at um, how we assess people and prepare people to go on longer journeys. And so there's been lots of system things that we put in as a result of using that sort of methodology because it depersonalized it completely where people there were, they felt able to describe quite safely their experience of that, but also look at it more objectively. Yeah, um, I guess that depersonalization is is removing that blame, that able, that ability to open, um, have an open conversation, and say actually that didn't feel right, that didn't go so well, but not saying well, Kerry, you didn't do that, um, because we all know that it's about the systems and processes that we're working within that either enable us or or act as a blocker for us to do what we need to do when we need to do it. So yeah, it was a really positive experience. Um, and um, I think engaging in that way, it's it's helped staff to see the benefit of that approach and they'll be more confident in using it as we move forward. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really good. Being able to kind of break down those barriers so people feel open to kind of talking and I guess being involved in the kind of actions that the development of those actions that come out of it. Um, it sounds like you you kind of had, you took a systems approach to how you approached it anyway. Did you use a framework for that? Like similar, like whether or not it was SEEPS or another or another framework, have you, have you used systems-based framework in how you kind of do your learning responses? Um, yeah, I guess not in so much as we took the actual infrastructure of that framework in, but certainly as I mean, I facilitated the after action review round table. So um, had that framework within my mindset as I was approaching it. So we were very much focusing on sort of breaking it down into um, different sort of contributory factors and, and, and things. So um, and that worked quite well because when we, we had clinical staff, we had a driver, we had the transport office, we had the local security management team, we had patient safety. So by using that sort of systems engineering sort of framework, it made it relevant to everybody. 
it removed it from the clinical bit and, and, and suddenly it gave it relevance and for non-clinical services as well. So that was that was quite useful. Great. No, that's really helpful. Um, I'm going to move on to the next topic. Um, so we've talked a little bit around tools. We've talked about kind of response methods. Um, so the next one's kind of focus on measuring improvement. And so we had a few questions around this. Um, one came in via Twitter from Hannah Squires. And Hannah was asking how you ensure learning turns into improvement and how you measure that. If you have you all know? the answers, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I'd be applying them left, right and centre. Um, I think that's a really good question. Um, and in terms of we've got um, a PSAP and learning group which um, talks about incidents and, and, uh, and that was one of the questions that came up for us is so, so how do you know you're learning? And I think as organisations, we're very good at disseminating information, but dissemination of information isn't necessarily learning. Um, so it's actually what do we do with the information? How do we test it? How do we improve it? So how do we know that it's made the difference that we we wanted it to? Um, I'd like to say again that we've got that licked, but we haven't. Um, and, and this is really about, you know, this is more than your committees. This is more than the groups that you have. This is about the everyday conversations that you have, the everyday challenges. How do you bring that so what question into those conversations and say, so how did that make a difference? So how are you testing that? And those are some of the things that we're doing now. Obviously, the learning that we've got, we're looking at how that feeds into um, not just local sort of improvement plans, but organisational improvement plans. So we may have got this, but how does it fit in with other work that's going on? Because otherwise you end up with 101 action plans going nowhere because nobody's got any time to commit the energy to it. So um, and I guess that's the other bit is you can't eat an elephant all in one go. You need to prioritise your improvements and um, think about where you're going to get the greatest wins and where you can make the biggest difference. And you may have to live with some of those um, those gaps on your risk register, if you like, um, but you're well sighted on them and, and take that stepwise approach because you can't fix everything all at once. And I guess that's kind of where we're at at the moment. I've never heard that one before about eating an elephant all in one go. I'll have to remember that one. <laughs> one bite one. at a time, Tracy. <laughs> yeah, one bite at a time. <laughs> um, and I guess related to this then also came in via Twitter from um, Lil. Um, so Lil was asking, have you noticed any improved learning um, and reduced harm incidents? I would say that we're still, very, although we're 12 months in, we're still very early days and we're still really assessing that. Um, I wouldn't say that we've noticed that difference quite yet, um, but that may well come in terms of as I start to analyse where we're at now, as we start to review our first piece up. So we've, um, that's my next that's my next phase for October is to review and analyze the data. Is it showing us the same thing or have we, see, have we seen a shift? But we've got lots of other different pieces of work going on as well. So we've got the reducing restrictive practice sort of work. Um, we've got lots of, we've got an integrated falls improvement plan. We've got pressure ulcer improvement plans. So there's lots of measurement happening in different places. 
I think the other thing to say is we've been trying to implement this throughout a COVID pandemic and through sustained operational pressures. Um, and I guess that the, the bit to consider around that is, are we going to get a true picture, uh, a representative of, of from where we started? So we're going to be doing some careful analysis as we look forward to our future PSERP. So that doesn't really answer the question, but I think I think even 12 months on, it's really early to start saying, have we had a sustainable impact on what we're doing? And that's the bit that we're looking for. Yeah, no, I think that's really important as well around when we've kind of set the guidelines around renewing plans. I think we can kind of iterate, you know, much faster, you know, if there are things that we want to change, but to actually look at kind of improvements who kind of set the expectations for that around every four years to you know to really have a a full in-depth review of everything that we put in place so absolutely it's 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 a kind of work in progress over time for sure um from the same person not on on twitter so lil um so fish 10 underscore fisher um they were asking uh, this was so moving on now to talk about kind of various stakeholders um, they were they were asking about any feedback that you've had from coroners. So I don't think we can talk about PSERF without mentioning the coroner. Um, so just interested in your thoughts on that. So as with most organisations, I'm sure this is where understanding what else your SI framework fed um, or feeds, um, because our coroner was very much used to seeing SIs for all um, Pretty much all deaths where there was a fractured neck femur or a self-harm or, or presumed suicide and obviously they're not going to get that under PSERF. Um, so what we have done is our medical director has um, very good links with our head coroner. They've had conversations. We kept the coroner, the local coroner informed throughout the whole process and I actually met with our ICB patient safety lead and patient safety specialist with the coroner's office, so the head coroner and all the coroner's officers, um, and kind of revisited what the purpose of the SI framework, which is that actually the investigation should have been boundaried for patient safety and not mission creep, as I lovingly call it. Um, but because sometimes it doesn't answer the questions that the coroner is asking, um, but also then spoke to them about the learning from deaths policy, what that means and what that is in terms of and also PSERF and how that will change what he sees coming from the organisation. What it doesn't change is the fact that the coroner will still get the statements that they request that are for the purposes for the coronial process. So kind of revisited what patient safety incident investigations were for and um, we spoke about that they wouldn't get so many. The coroner's officers were most nervous about that, I guess, in terms of because it's for them collating and collecting the information um, and that they would see things in a different way. So we would happily share the feedback from any other reviews that we've done. So if we'd done roundtable discussions after action reviews, clinical reviews, we would share the outcomes and the learning from those because I think that's the important bit. And the other bit for me is maybe more proactively sharing with the coroner's officers our organisational improvement plans and what proactive work is happening as a result of patient safety work. And I think we probably need to get better at sharing that. 
so we haven't had any negative feedback, but we are continually trying to engage with the coroner um, and keep those really good open communication channels. I think that's some really, really good advice. It's, it's often a question that Lauren and I get asked. And I think, um, and it's one of the main reasons why when we put together that prep guide that we put kind of engaging with key stakeholders very early on in the orientation phase to be able to build those relationships and make coroners and the like aware of the changes that are coming before transition happens. So really grateful to our early adopters who kind of went through that um, to help us kind of develop that prep guide. Um, sticking with stakeholders, this one, this one, another question came to um, via our launch webinar um, and this one's about the CQC um, and somebody was asking during the launch webinar whether or not you've been visited by the CQC since adopting PCEF and have you seen improved safety ratings? So we have been, um, but I would um, no, we haven't seen improved safety ratings, but actually I don't think we're far enough in our um, process, uh, progress in PCEF yet to start seeing um, that coming forward, you know, we're still having, so for me, the biggest thing around PCF is culture. It's changing conversations um, and, and that's really challenging. You know, we're an organisation um, of 5,000 staff that are quite, you know, geographically spread um, through a pandemic, through um, the operational pressures. So people's priorities have been um, patient flow and they continue to be patient flow so I think it is really about when they next visit us um, I would expect to see changes in our safety rating but I think this time is too early. No I think that I've kind of jotted down what you were saying that about changing conversations and that's it I think it's kind of this, this change is going to happen one small conversation at a time over the next few years and also I guess for our early adopters um, we I, and Lauren can um, um, Lauren knows much better than I do about when we first started and the, the conversations we were having with the CQC at the time was just to kind of give us space to allow kind of early adopters to test this new framework. Whereas for other organisations, when they transition, we're going to be do doing a lot more work with the CQC to kind of look at how kind of their inspections might change under under PSERF. So that so other organisations that are transitioning now over the next twelve months will have that already in place for them when when they when they transition to PCEF. Um, speaking think, of, sorry, go ahead, Harry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. I think there is also something about changing the conversation within CQC relationship meetings. When you get those inquiries that come through, it's about, you know, it's the same with the coroner. It's about showing some of the proactive work. So, you know, they will openly admit that they look at every moderate and above harm incident um, as part of opening inquiries. So, do they want reassurance of one, one fractured neck of femur or actually do they want reassurance around the fact that the organisation is aware of where there are gaps and improvements are required and what action the organisation is taking in its entirety? So I think it's about how do we start to change those conversations um, in those relationship meetings as well and challenge some of that. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, OK, so I have a question for Lauren now. Um, but also, Kerry, absolutely welcome to hear your um, perspective. Um, and this one is about the independent sector. So also came in via Lil on Twitter. Um, and Lil was asking, well, Lil noted that they work in the in the independent sector and was asking if we had any advice 
for them regarding NHS funded patients? So I c I'll come to you first, Lauren, and, and then Kerry, if you have any reflections, um, that would be useful. Oh, thank you, Tracy. Yeah, uh, this is a question we're getting asked quite a lot since the launch of PreSurf. And I think there are some particular challenges, especially for small independent providers. Um, you know, the, the challenges are different because of the size of the organisation, the amount of resources that are available to the teams, and also the volume of data. You know, PSERF, um, one of the one of the key changes was to allow organisations reporting a high volume of serious incidents to move away from the you know the daily churn of doing SI investigation after SI investigation. And I don't think all of the small independent providers will necessarily feel that because they don't report so many incidents, don't have as many serious incidents to start off with. But I still think there is a real benefit of thinking about the risks that they, they do have and the incidents that do occur and how they can apply the proportionate approach that PSERF allows. Um, and also how you can make the most of the systems-based methods that we talk about as well, because throughout the whole system, um, we have been encouraged to do RCA. And I know more recently, organisations have taken it upon themselves to think about how they apply systems-based frameworks to that process. And it has started to move forward, but um, certainly, you know, going back to when we first started the, the engagement, RCA was undertaken in a really linear way across all the organisations that we were talking to. So it's a real opportunity to work together to do something um, which is far more system focused. And, and also, just to say for the small independent providers, it's not a worry or a reason um, that PSOF won't work, 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 sorry, if you don't have a high volume of, of incidents, that's that's not the case. You can um, you can adapt your plans to make it fit for you. Um, so that's not a concern. I know there is another challenge for the small independent providers in terms of engaging commissioners or the Inter integrated care boards, and um, especially those independent providers which may have a national contract and therefore have to engage with um, commissioners throughout the system. I know that can be complicated because it may mean engaging with, you know, 42 or more separate commissioners. So just to say we're working with our colleagues in NHS England to think about how we can support the uptake of a lead commissioner model to reduce some of that complexity and make sure that there can be a partner in the planning process for independent providers um, and also somebody there to support the sign off and then oversight thereafter um, recognizing of course that that's going to need local conversations because we can't set rules for want of a better word that are going to work for every different type of service but some principles around how that might work uh, I think will be really helpful I think it has revealed the complexity that the independent provider sector has experienced under the serious incident framework uh, the assumption being that um independent providers would report si's to their commissioners and there would be a sign-off process um but actually thinking that uh, the lead commissioner model would already be there and actually that's not not the case for everybody so i think revisiting that will be really helpful not just for PSERF actually but for quality governance more more broadly um there, there are lots of things that we're thinking about doing, though, to allow us to work more closely with the independent provider sector. 
So um, Dawn Hodgkins from the Independent Healthcare Providers Network has been really helpful in thinking about how we coordinate um, some sessions um, to have conversations about pre-serve preparation um, and planning in the independent sector and how we work through the complexity and the commissioning system too. And we're reaching out to other um, independent provider leads separately. Um, and I'm not sure what shape the webinars or support offer will take yet, but that's something that we can develop over time. So, um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, Tracy. <laughs> I don't know if there's other things that you probably are thinking of that I've missed. No, I think I think that was a really helpful overview. And I, I think, yeah, we're we're, we're going to work as much as I can, as much as we can um, with those different provider types. So we know there are specific questions around independent providers. We know there are specific questions around mental health providers. And so over the next kind of 12 months, although it's shorter now, isn't it? It's about 11 months. Mm -hmm. um, there'll be 10 months maybe soon. Time is ticking. But um, but yeah, we are, we're, we're looking to see what we can do nationally to support where there are these big questions that many, you know, that affect many organisations. Um, were, were there any reflections at all from you, Kerry, on the independent providers? Yeah, I guess for me is, you know, the patients that um, within the independent sector will come into the public sector at some point. So what is the interface with um, your NHS providers locally? Um, you know, certainly within um, Cornwall, we're trying to build our network. We've got a patient safety systems meeting that happens um, on alternate weeks. We're trying to build that network to look um, with volunteers, with independent sector, with other NHS providers, because actually they are the same people and patients that access our services and travel through them. So we're really keen to think about how we work as a whole system. So I guess my advice to people within the independent sector would be link in and see if you can improve your interface with your local NHS provider and pinch with pride on wherever you can within the PSURF journey. I think that's great advice. <laughs> yeah, we like a bit of pinching with pride. Um, OK, that, that that's really, really helpful. I think um, another question for Lauren, actually. Um, so we we talked a little bit around kind of measuring kind of improvement within organisations, but we often get asked around kind of measuring the effectiveness of um, PSERF. And I don't know, if Lauren, you're able to um, answer that about some of the plans we have nationally to measure the effectiveness of PSERF. Yeah, I can do. Um, it's something we started thinking about really early on, even in the early adopter programme, and particularly when we were helping to design the evaluation that was undertaken independently. Um, and I think it was really helpful as part of that process to look back on our theory of change. So for those who don't know that term, just a method to try and explain how a, an intervention or initiative is supposed to work in, in a particular context. But that really forced us to think about the outcomes that we were hoping to achieve and the processes that we um, thought would get us to those outcomes. So revealed some measures for us. I think in the evaluation, though, we were really reliant on voices of, of people. Um, and similar to the, what you were saying earlier, Kerry, really, it was it was very early on in the process to have hard measures of, of those outcomes that we were hoping to achieve, because as you said, many of them were cultural. We wanted you know, staff to feel psychologically safe. We wanted a learning and improvement environment. We wanted patients and families to feel more engaged in the process. Um, and safety culture uh, to be improving generally. And they are 
well firstly really hard things to measure and also things that don't change overnight so it was it was early days to try and um, find measures of those but I think through the surveys that we did and the interviews with um, early adopters, boards, you know lots of other stakeholders, um, our patient safety partners, our implementation group, the list was was endless. We started to hear about the opportunity um, to change culture under PISA because it was removing this fear around investigation process and moving to a you know, systems-based thinking was removing that feeling of, of blame. Um, so yeah, in the evaluation, um, I think we were re reliant on, on voices. We did look at reporting data as well to make sure that there was no unintended consequences of reporting. We still encourage reporting, of course, and luckily you know, that, that continued. Um, we wouldn't have expected to see a reduction in reporting, but we wanted to confirm that was the case. And we also reviewed some investigation um, and other types of review outputs. But in the future, um, we do hope to have some um, some more measures and, and data to show us that we're achieving what we set out to do for PSERF. And at the moment, we're developing a measurement plan um, and we're having we're getting some help from a company called Unity Insights to help us to do that. But this measurement plan will be structured around the four key aims of PSEF. Um, many of you listening to this will probably be familiar with those four aims. But the first one we talk about is the compassionate engagement and involvement of those affected. Um, so what are the measures that could tell us that we're achieving that? There are some sort of survey data out there, the NHS staff survey, um, but also looking at the number of complaints from patients and their families about the incident response process and what are we learning there uh, quite often um, if a patient or family isn't satisfied with the approach that an organisation has taken it will lead to complaints um, so it would be good to look for a reduction um, there. Um, then thinking about the the systems based approach and using a range of different tools, there's there's lots of things we could consider under this key aim really, and this is probably where some of the measures around staff feeling psychologically safe about raising concerns that when they do raise concerns they'll be acted on. There's lots of data in the staff survey that could be really helpful here telling us whether um, you know we're moving in the right direction that doesn't mean that it's all all to do with PSERF of course that's you know this is the part of the challenge too uh, PSERF is done in a sort of complex interlinked system so um, we could never say an improvement is directly the result of PSERF but hopefully it will it, we can we can look for an association that, that's having the right impact um, one thing we can look for, though, is um, as a result of in investigations or incidents, perhaps I should say, is that we're not seeing staff automatically suspended or um, um, I'm struggling to find the right word. Perhaps suspended is, is, is the only word for now, but I was looking for some sort of other sanction that may be applied to staff that are undergoing a patient safety investigation currently. Um, and also there's, the, you know, there's a disproportionate representation of certain staff groups within the disciplinary procedures and hopefully a systems based approach will help reduce that. Um, because we're not looking at individual and we're not trying to apportion blame. So there are some key measures there. 
And then the other, another one of our key aims is that we are taking a considered and proportionate response. So this is to do with the balance of resource going into incident response compared to improvement. Really difficult thing to try and measure, but something that we're really hoping boards will focus on in the in the future because there's not much point investing in lots of response activity if you're not doing anything with it on the improvement side. Um, so this is something that we'll be starting to look at. Um, to see whether safety actions are monitored, whether we know they're having the desired effect. And of course, Kerry, this is you know, the, the fundamental question that you wanted to answer. Are we making a difference in terms of the risks and the issues that we've identified? Have we reduced risks? Have we improved patient safety? And I think that's that's going to be a really tricky thing to measure nationally. Um, and we might rely on um, the, the local intelligence and we have to think about how to do that without creating any additional burden on providers. But it's that that will be a key question for us. Where are we seeing the improvement and how how do we know? Um, and then, of course, we've got an, a key aim linked to oversight, too. Um, and our measures here will be focused on whether we're able to implement supportive oversight in the future that is focused on assessing the whole patient safety incident response system rather than focusing on a specific process aspect um, and whether the ICBs and the regional teams are supporting um, a kind of learning system rather than one that has perhaps felt quite bureaucratic in, in, in the past. Um, so lots of work to do, um, and I know we'll share that measurement plan once it's developed. As I say, Unity Insights are helping us to shape this. They're undertaking a horizon scan at the moment to look for the data that's available out there so we can make the most of intelligence that we have. Um, and then think about where we might need new processes to get the data where we don't currently have it. But we'll we'll talk more about that when we have a few more details in a month or two's time. Great. Thanks, Lauren. OK, so last question. I'm going to come over to you, Kerry. Just really interested. Is there anything that you would have done differently now looking back on your experience as an early adopter? Uh, yeah, I think in the planning stage, to be fair, there are probably some key tools that I didn't use to start with that um, reflecting would have been really quite helpful in terms of defining the team that may be um, a need and that you need around you and also some of the enablers and some of the the blockers and challenges so for me there's something about um how you undertake that stakeholder analysis um i would definitely go back now and have a look at influence and power versus interest um to identify who your key players are who you just need to keep informed and actually who you um need to keep involved um and in and truly engaged and and i think some of that is also not forgetting partners like actually for us as a mental health organization and community services We've got three areas that are actually commissioned by the Mental Health Collaborative um, that is different to. Um, so how do we engage with those? Um, you know, thinking about that interface with other providers and non-NHS and non-NHS services um, that support patients, particularly in understanding some of the um, 
systems that they have to respond to and why they might not be able to engage in some of yours in um it's not that they're not willing it's just actually that sometimes that's additional so i think by really undertaking that stakeholder analysis in more depth would have given us greater insight in that um also in terms of i think undertaking a pesle analysis to understand your political economic social technical legal and environmental factors really helps understand some of the barriers to the implementation um, to the implementation certain things like actually understanding what else the si process feeds as we've talked about um how it will impact things like duty of candor and our ability to respond and managing our expectations um and also the organization's patient safety maturity maybe looking at doing a SWOT analysis against um, and feeding that into Pesley, you know, understanding your committee structures and how it supports PSERF. Um, but really, yeah, just really giving you that baseline knowledge. One of the things that I did do that I found really useful that I would recommend is undertaking a gap analysis against the patient safety instant investigation standards, because that really led to us asking some soul searching questions about what do we need? What is that infrastructure going to look like? Um, and also in terms of planning, because, you know, none of us have infinite amounts of money to be able to deliver this. So sometimes it's about thinking about more creatively. Um, and I think by using some of those tools earlier on would have allowed maybe a bit more creativity as part of that planning process. That's really and I, super, super helpful and super timely as well while we're in those kind of early phases of preparation for PSEF. So really grateful for your time today, um, Kerry. So thank you very much for joining us. I think we'll finish the podcast there. I think that's enough information for people to to digest for now. Um, but if the people were, if listeners were looking to find out more about PSEF, then the best starting point is to visit the NHS England website, um, which can be found by simply Googling PSIRF, P-S-I-R-F. And we have a range of resources available, which includes some video clips for, um, of interviews of some of our early adopters. And there's also um, a range of other resources and discussion forums available on the PSIRF section of our NHS Patient Safety Future NHS Workspace. And this includes further questions and answers from our launch webinar that we held on Monday, the 5th of September. And also you can, um, listeners can also keep an eye on Twitter um, at PTSafetyNHS, where we also post um, PSAF updates. So thanks very much for listening and thanks very much to Kerry and Lauren for answering the questions today.